You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Did you know that Planet Fitness, the average Planet Fitness facility, has 10,000 members that belong to each gym? 10,000 members for, on average, for each Planet Fitness facility. And 92% of those members don't use the gym on any regular basis. Let's be honest here. How many of us have ever paid for a gym membership that we haven't used? A lot of us. I went once this last week, so I'm not like you people. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've definitely been there as well. 92% don't use the facility on a regular basis. And Planet Fitness knows this. In fact, their entire business model is built on the assumption that most of their customers won't actually use their product because if all 10,000 members use the gym regularly, their facilities wouldn't be able to handle it, right? And if they didn't have that many members, I mean, have you seen how nice those facilities are? They wouldn't be able to pay for the facilities. Their entire business model is built on a really, really cynical truth about humanity, and it's this right here. Dreams tend to die. Dreams tend to die. Happy New Year, right? <laughs> Dreams tend to die. We all, we all know this, right? All of us have probably at one point or another made a New Year's resolution where we're going to, this is going to be our year, man. This year is going to look different as if there's something magical about January 1, and then the Super Bowl hits in February, and those buffalo wings look really, really good. At least there's celery with them, right? <laughs> or or maybe, maybe you're a parent of, of grown kids, and you had a vision for your kids' lives of, of what it might actually look like. And the life that they're living today looks very different than what you dreamed about or hoped for for your kids' lives. Maybe for you, you've experienced some kind of plot twist, right? You had dreams for your life and then a diagnosis happened or an unexpected loss Happened. Maybe for you, you had expectations about a new job situation or a new neighborhood you were moving into, and expectations collided with reality, and, and your dream just kind of died. The, the truth is, we all know what it feels like to have a dream that has died in some capacity. All of us know what it feels like when a dream dies. What dreams have you given up on in your life? Maybe there's something that comes to mind for you when I ask that question. What dreams have you given up on in your life? I think about like growing up. There were so many things that I wanted to be as a kid, and one by one, each of those dreams died. Like when I was younger, I wanted to be in a boy band. It was the 90s, okay? Like, don't judge me. Then I realized I can't sing or dance, which to be fair, neither can most of boy band members. Then I wanted to be an NBA player. And my parents lovingly told me that was not going to happen. <laughs> Then I wanted to be a teacher and a lawyer, and one by one, something crushed those dreams. Not even always in like a profoundly like negative way, but just something happened. Life happened. Reality set in. And for some of us, we've had so many dreams die in our lives that we look at dreamers or people who dream or dreams in general with this outrageous skepticism. 
that dreams are somehow disconnected from reality. Right? We asked you to fill out that note card earlier in the service. What dreams do you have for your life in this coming year? I imagine there were probably some of us who couldn't come up with anything to write down because we have skepticism towards dreams, because we've experienced dreams that have died. They're disconnected from reality. I found this quote about dreams that I thought was pretty funny. Dreaming permits each and every one of us to be quietly and safely insane every night of our lives. Right? Maybe you view dreams as disconnected from reality or view them as false hope or a distraction. Maybe you view them as naive and immature. Did you know that half of our waking thoughts are spent daydreaming? That's just crazy, mind-wandering, daydreaming about what could be. And as we start this new series called Redeem the Dream, I want to start by just asking this question, and this is a hard question. Is it possible that sometimes my dreams actually need to die because God has a better dream for my life than I do? Like if you have a dream and, and maybe the dream comes to life and God shows up in it in a powerful way and all of a sudden the dream dies and you're left in this place where you're picking up the pieces and, and your life is left in shambles and so many of us are, are faced in this moment where, we ask, where God is asking us this question, which dream is more important to you, your dream for your life or mine? We're going to be looking in this series at the most famous dreamer in all of scripture, a guy named Joseph. And Joseph was not just a dreamer, but he interpreted other people's dreams. God gave Joseph a dream for his life. And what we're going to see in his story is that his life is so full of highs and lows and detours and plot twists and ups and downs that his, his dream was realized, it was fulfilled, it was there were times where it felt lost. He's got a really complicated, confusing life, like most of us have a really complicated and confusing life, Right? But I think what we're going to learn from Joseph's story over the next several weeks as we dig into layers of it is that God has a dream for your life that he actually wants to redeem for each and every one of us. So if you have, if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37, verses 3. And if you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the first book. It's at the very beginning. And we're going to be in chapter 37 starting in verse 3 here. So we have to begin by just kind of setting the stage for Joseph's family here. Now Israel, which is not a country in this sense, it's, it's a man's name, Israel, or Jacob is another word that, uh, name that he goes by. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. You can kind of see the problems brewing in the, the family already, right? Verse 4, But when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Okay, so Joseph is this guy who has 11 brothers. There's 12 boys in this. Can you imagine having 12 boys in your family? Holy cow. Right? 12 boys. I have one boy and he's too much to handle, Okay. Twelve boys in this family, and there is some really intense sibling rivalry. Joseph is number 11 of 12, and he is the favorite of his father Israel, or his father Jacob. Now, why is he the favorite? This is a messy family story. Anybody ever seen the TLC show Sister Wives before? 
That's kind of the dynamic that's happening here. Okay, so Israel, Joseph's dad, is married to two women who are not just sister wives, they're actual sisters in real life too. Very weird family dynamic. And uh, Jacob, or Israel, prefers one of his wives over another. Right? He prefers his wife Rachel over her sister Leah. She's more desirable to him. She's more beautiful to him. And so what happens is Jacob, or Israel, I'm using these names interchangeably, he labors for 14 years to be able to marry his wife Rachel. I mean, the dude is committed to winning this woman over, right? So he works for her dad for 14 years. And if that's not bad enough, he's married to both Leah and Rachel, and Rachel is barren. She's infertile. She can't have any kids for like 14 years while his sister Leah, the less desirable wife, is just popping out kids one after another. I mean, she's a baby factory, right? Like 11 or 10 boys, right? Just, just having them like crazy. And so finally, finally, his favorite wife Rachel gets pregnant and she is pregnant with Joseph. And the moment Joseph is born, there's some kind of Dream coming true for Israel, his dad. My favorite wife just had a son. So it doesn't make you wonder why Joseph would be elevated or favorited over his brothers, over his siblings. But as you can imagine, this leaves all of Israel's other sons, Leah's boys, frustrated, bitter, and jealous. And that wouldn't be that bad if Joseph was like humble about it. But he likes to kind of flaunt his favorite child's status. And, and you'll see this as he goes to his brothers and tells them about a dream he has. Reading on in verse 5 here, watch what happens. This guy's an idiot. Uh, sorry, <laughs> just saying it like it is. Uh, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. You're about to see why. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Can you imagine like the puffed up chest while he says this? Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, which is just like grains. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright with his chest puffed. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Pro tip, if you have a dream like this about your family, probably best not to tell them about it, right? But Joseph doesn't listen to this. He actually has another dream, and he takes it even further in these next verses here, verse 9. Then Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Does anyone else have that one member of their family that has the weirdest dreams? For me, that was my mom. Like, she would always come and say, hey, I had a dream last night. I was like, uh-oh, buckle up. This is going to be weird. Right? We all, we all kind of know those weird family members that have those weird dreams. But in this culture, in this world, it wasn't weird at all to have dreams that had meaning behind them 
And I believe, by the way, that God still speaks in this way in really powerful ways in people's lives. But this wasn't weird for them to talk about dreams and celebrate dreams and interpret dreams. What was weird is for Joseph, as one of the youngest kids in the family, to approach his older brothers. And keep in mind, hierarchy in these family structures was like oldest is best, oldest boy is best. For the younger brother to come to his older brother and say, you will bow down to me one day. And then to say that to his dad and his mom, man, this is flipping everything about family structure. This is a weird dream for Joseph to tell his family. And so it makes sense that his brothers would feel this way, right? I think if we're honest with ourselves, any of us would feel this way in this moment. In fact, put yourself in the brother's shoes. Have you ever had seasons of your life or even moments in your life in big and small ways where it seems like everybody else's dreams are coming true and you just feel stuck? Or you feel like yours are not? Maybe for you, you've been in a season where it's like all of your friends feel like they're getting pregnant. And you just have negative test after negative test. And and you want to be happy for them, like genuinely. But there's this, this sense of jealousy and if we're not careful, even bitterness that can begin to grow in us in these moments. Or maybe you have a sibling and and they seem to be climbing the corporate ladder and doing well financially and they just bought your dream house and you can barely afford rent right now or putting food on the table. Right? We all know what these moments feel like where we look out and we see other people's dreams coming true and ours just seem to be stalled or falling apart. If we are not careful, and this is what I want to say even right now, we have to pay attention to what grows in us in these seasons. Because if we're not careful, bitterness, jealousy, resentment, and anger can grow in us. And like I said, this happens in big ways and small ways in our lives. I have, I have this happen in a, a smaller way over Christmas break. So if you know anything about church world, December as a month is really exhausting for pastors. Okay, so lots of stuff going on, lots of outreach events going on, lots of services, and then we had the blizzard mix in there. And so like, I was ready for Christmas Day because I had a week of vacation ahead of me, right? I had a dream for what this week was going to look like. I had time off. We were going to have fun with our kids. It was just, we were staying home, just moments to breathe and rest. I had goals that I wanted to like kind of set for the year ahead. And then the day after Christmas, bam, I get hit with COVID, right? And I'm just like in bed and I've had COVID once before, but like this time was not fun, right? I'm talking, I'm sleeping 23 hours a day. Any light that comes on my face is just excruciatingly painful, I'm like, I got all of the symptoms. And uh, as I'm kind of like sitting here in bed, throwing my own little pity party, I'm like scrolling on social media and seeing all of the different things that everybody else is doing and how much fun everybody's having and how like, this is going to be my year. And I'm like, this do your socks already. Like, I, I don't want to deal with it. And just feeling really down. And then the other thing like that people don't talk about a lot with COVID is like depression is a very real thing when you're navigating that too. Right, And so not only am I like physically weak, but I'm really emotionally weak this past week as well. I mean, my poor wife, I love you so much. Um, I'm just like so dramatic. Come down, like once I was out of quarantine, I, wanna, I don't want to ever see anybody again. I want to quit my job. I just want to be a hermit for the rest of my life. And she's like, you are so dramatic. Go back to bed, okay? <laughs> but, but I'll tell you this, like 
like, yes, it was a small thing, but, but God really convicted me on this. And he said, so many of your dreams are circumstantial dreams for your life. As in, if things go your way, if things, you know, my favor seems to be on your life, then you believe good things like joy and happiness for others and things like that can grow in you. But the moment your circumstances change, the moment you have a dream that dies, not even that it was that big of one, bitterness can take over. Jealousy can take over. Resentment can take over. This is the, this is the reality for every single one of us. And few things can kill God's dream for our lives faster than bitterness towards other people. Back this past year, I learned two new words that I have really used constantly to check myself on this. And these are actually two German words because we don't have equivalent words in English, but I think we all know these feelings. The first word is the word schadenfreude. Has anybody ever heard of that word before? Handful of us. So schadenfreude is this idea that I celebrate the death of someone else's dream or I celebrate someone else's misfortune, or I look with eagerness at someone else's failure, right? And we live in a schadenfreude culture. You're going to start hearing this word more now that you've heard it here, because it, I've been hearing it a lot, even once I learned it. And uh, here's this thing, like, Christianity Today is a, is a Christian magazine. It's a Christian news organization. And even when you look at their most popular articles from this last year within the church... 70% of their most popular articles had to do with pastors failing, churches you know, falling apart, like just failure in general. We live in a culture that celebrates other people's failures or the falling apart of other people's dreams. Have you ever wrestled with this before? I do. I have. And here's what I'm reminded about this. That when we wrestle through this, like when this is our reality, that is a surefire indication that we lack a confidence and security in God's dream to redeem our lives and our stories. When I look at the lives and the stories of other people and there's something gross that grows in me because of that, that is a surefire sign that I lack confidence in the calling God has on my life, what he's doing in my life, and his dream for my life. But then there's the opposite of schadenfreude. And this is a word called freudenfreude. And this is when we actually celebrate other people's dreams becoming reality. That I can see what God is doing in you. That I can see your success. That I can see your dreams becoming reality. That I can see your, you know, your success and celebrate that. And it doesn't threaten mine. Because I am confident in the dream that God has to actually redeem my life and my story. And we're both going to have detours. And we're both going to have plot twists and bumps along the way. But when I am living confident in the dream that God has for my life, I know that I know my life is bent towards redemption. Even in the midst of the detours. Even in the midst of the plot twists. Which one of those two do you think Joseph's brothers, <laughs> which attitude do you think they had towards him? The first one. Yeah, we can't say the word. It's fine. I can barely pronounce him either. But schadenfreude. That is certainly the word that Joseph's brothers had towards him to the point where they ensured his destruction. In fact, as you read on in his story here, 
There's this moment where Joseph is sent out by his dad to check on his brothers working in the field, and they make a plot to ensure his dreams don't become reality. Listen to what happens here. Verse 18, they saw him from afar. And before he came to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Can you just hear the bitterness in their voice? Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, who was the oldest boy, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, which was a symbol of his dad's love, remember? And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Now, long story short, his brothers as a whole, as a group, ultimately decide not to kill him. They take the moral high ground and sell him into slavery instead, right? Let's be honest. How many of us have been tempted to do that with one of our siblings, right? They, they <laughs> I see some hands shooting up around here. They sell him into slavery instead. Joseph, as a teenage boy, is enslaved in Egypt And what we're going to see over the next several weeks is that his life is one of highs and low points, detours and plot twists. There are moments in his life where God's favor seems to be on him circumstantially, only to have lies told about him that land him in prison. And then there's going to be other moments in his life where it seems like vindication from the wrong that was done to him is possible only to be forgotten while he's sitting in prison. And then there's going to be other moments where he rises to power only to come face to face once again with the same brothers who absolutely tried to destroy his dream. By the time he is age 30, half of Joseph's life, 13 years, just under half, will be spent in some kind of slavery, captivity, or prison. If you thought Kevin McCarthy had a hard time raising to power this last week, just wait till you hear Joseph's rise to power. It is brutal. Talk about a dream that died. If I'm Joseph, after being sold by my brothers into slavery, walking with this caravan, hands tied with ropes, you know what would be running through my mind? A very honest conversation with God. I said, but God, I thought it was supposed to be this way, but instead it's this way. God, I thought you gave me the dream of a king, but instead I'm living the life of a slave. God, I thought you called me to this career, but instead I'm still right here in this job. God, I thought they were my soulmate, but instead they're not here anymore. God, I thought you called me to be a mom or a dad, but here I am instead with another negative pregnancy test. God, I thought I took good physical care of my body, but here I am with a terminal illness. I think every single one of us know what it feels like to be in the same position where the dream seems like it has died, and Joseph 
is on his way. And I just imagine him asking these questions. God, why? God, why is this happening to me right now? God, why are they living my dream? God, why am I still here? God, why did they leave? God, why? See, guys, we tend to think that the death of our dream, our circumstantial dreams for our lives, is the end of our story. But Joseph's life and his story shows us that it's not. I want to illustrate it this way. There's a famous painting that hangs in the French Museum, um, the Louvre. And this is a painting called Checkmate. And as you can see from the picture here, it's this depiction of this guy playing against the devil a game of chess. And the idea behind this painting is that the devil has won the game, that he is in this position of checkmate against the other player. The other player has no more moves. The other player has lost the game. And there was one day when the Louvre was hosting a group of world-class athletes, and they were giving a tour of the museum. And the tour guide is, you know, showing them these different works of art, and they come to this, this painting called Checkmate. And one of the people in their group is a world-class chess champion. Now, whether or not that's an actual athlete, we can debate that later. But he happens to be in their group. And so he is just staring, this world-class chess champion is staring at this painting. And the group moves on. The group goes and looks at other paintings, and this world-class chess champion cannot stop staring at this painting. He is mesmerized by it, to the point where the tour guide eventually realizes he's missing from the group and goes back and stands next to this world-class chess champion. And he goes, tour guide goes, hey, what's up? The world-class chess champion goes, well, I'm looking at this painting here, and the tour guide's like, yeah, it's called Checkmate. You know, it's a picture of the devil playing against a guy, and the guy is lost. The devil's won the game of chess. The world-class chess champion goes, you, you know I'm a world-class chess champion, right? The tour guide goes, yeah. The other guy goes, well, there's a, there's a problem with this painting. And the tour guide goes, well, what is that? And the world-class chess champion says, well, they're either going to have to change the painting or they're going to have to change the name of the painting from checkmate to something else. And the tour guide says, what do you mean? And the chess champion goes, this is not a checkmate. The king has another move. The game is not lost. The king has another move. And if Joseph's story teaches us anything, it's that even in the midst of the highs and lows, even in the midst where the dream seems lost or the plot seems lost, that the king always has another move. In fact, at the end of his story, when Joseph is confronted face-to-face -face with his brothers once again, the guys who tried to kill him, the guys who sold him into slavery, the guys who tried to destroy his dream, he is face-to-face -face with these guys. And this is the summary of his story that he says to them. This is beautiful and profound and so important for us to understand. This is what he says to them. He says, you meant it for evil. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In other words, the king had another move. Even in those moments where the dream seems lost, 
even in those moments where it seemed like hope had failed, the king had another move. And hear me on this. This is so much more than just kind of a fluffy idea or self-help or even this like, if God did it for Joseph, he can do it for you. No, what Joseph's story points us to is the story of Jesus. And what Jesus does is he generalizes Joseph's story for every single one of us. In fact, scholars say that there are no less than a hundred parallels between Jesus' story and Joseph's story. In the same way, Jesus came to his brothers, to his own, highly favored by his father, and his brothers, his own, did not receive him. Jesus, like Joseph, was sold for silver into captivity. Jesus was stripped of the coat of the father's love, just like Joseph, and abandoned to die and cried out in the dark, why? And nobody cared. Nobody came. Joseph was being turned into a savior for his people, the only way that God ever uses people to save others. Through plot twists, through pain, through weakness, and through rejection. Why? To ultimately point us to Jesus. Joseph's story shows us that even in the highs and lows of our life and our story, even in the midst of the plot twists and the detours and the pain and the suffering, this is true for every single one of us when we are in Christ, that God's dream is to redeem your story for his glory. God's dream is to redeem your story for his glory, that he who started a work in you will see it through to completion. That's his promise. That is his promise. And so when I think about even just this last year and the highs and the lows that I've experienced in 2022, I had a lot of time to kind of sit and reflect when I was dramatic and alone and depressed with COVID this last week. And I just was like, I was reading through my journal and just reading about all of the different things that God did. I mean, just the highs and lows. And I just got to tell you, like 2022 for me was one of the best years I've ever been able to be a part of in ministry. I mean, God moved so powerfully in our community. It was, it's been powerful to witness I just got some numbers back this last week. Like 80 people made a significant decision for Jesus in our church last year. Like that's crazy. I thought the number was wrong. I followed, I was like to the admin, I was like, this can't be right. And they showed me date by date and story by story of where this happened between camp and Easter services and services in the park and all of the different things and, and witnessing and evangelism that you guys did for neighbors. Like 80 people made some kind of significant decision, whether that was a first-time commitment, a recommitment, or a calling into ministry. That's beautiful. We got to baptize 24 people last year. That's beautiful. But I'm also reminded that there were some really low lows this last year. I think back specifically, and one of the, the journal entry that stood out to me was the one from May 15 this last year. And May 15 was probably one of my favorite Sunday mornings that we've experienced, that I experienced all last year. We had the opportunity on May 15 to baptize 11 people. 
I mean, people that I have been praying for for months and for years in some cases made a decision on that day to go public for Jesus. It was one of the coolest celebrations that I've been a part of in our church. So I, I walked away from service that day on cloud nine, like just flying high, so excited for what God was doing. I was at youth group later that night, and I mean, just such, such cool things happening. But then my phone started blowing up. And people from the church were calling me and texting me, like urgent, urgent texts. My wife called and texted me, and she said, you need to get home right now. So I called her back. I said, hey, what's up? And she said, I'm not telling you, like, you just need to get home as fast as you can. And as you can imagine, that was the longest 10-minute drive of my life. And I got home. There was someone there at our house from the church. And he was there to tell me that his brother, a good friend of mine who has been part of our church for years, had taken his own life that afternoon. He was literally at our service that morning. He took his own life. And I just remember in this moment, collapsing to the ground, just feeling numb and paralyzed. And like, God, but I thought, and now it... What are you doing? And as I think about that moment, that one day, May 15, the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, I think that's a picture of a lot of our lives. In fact, I know that's what some of our years look like in 2022. The highest of highs and the lowest of lows all in the same year. We're honest with ourselves, that's probably what some of our 2023 is going to look like. We're going to have really high highs, and we're going to have really, really low lows. Mountains and valleys, both. And the thing that God keeps stirring in me is this. Am I willing to surrender the May 15th of my life to what he wants to do? Because if I believe that my life, my entire story is bent towards redemption, even in the midst of the plot twists, even in the midst of the detours, then my only natural response is to surrender the May 15th seasons, the dreams and the nightmares, the highs and the lows, and to trust him in the midst of both. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of of the Lord be praised. So I want to invite you to take out that card from earlier in the service, the one where you wrote down, what is my dream for this coming year? And I just want to ask this question, if you can put that up there, Luke. Am I willing to give up my dreams to God's dream for my life? Am I willing to actually surrender the thing that I wrote down earlier? Am I willing to trust God with that, even if it doesn't go according to my timeline? Am I willing to surrender the broken dreams, the fractured dreams for his dream for my life? Because the way you answer that question, it changes the way we live. It changes the way that we see God at work in our lives. It changes the way we watch for his movement and his voice in our lives. It changes how we read scripture. It changes our prayer life. It changes our relationships with those around us. 
that if I am willing to surrender my dreams, my desires, my wants, my timelines to the God who promises to redeem my story, and that changes everything about the way I enter this new year. So here's how I want to close today. Is we're going to sing a song called Firm Foundation. It's such a fitting song for even just our, our content and what we talked through this morning. And as we sing this, here's what I want to invite you to do. As an act of surrender, as an act of trust, as an act of saying, God, you've got this. I want to invite you at some point during the song to bring this card up here and leave it on the stage to surrender it. And that's not saying to let go of that dream. In some cases, that means to just trust God with that dream. In other cases, it is a letting go. It's a, it's a freeing of ourselves from the grip of that. But I want to invite you, even today, as we sing, to bring your card up, lay it down as a physical response, an act of surrendering and giving up our dreams to what God might actually want to do in our lives this coming year. So let me offer a prayer, and then we're going to respond in worship. God, thank you for Joseph's story. Thank you that his story ultimately points us to Jesus, and Jesus generalizes Joseph's story for all of us. That in Christ, your dream is to redeem my story for your glory. Thank you that I can live with that faith and that confidence and that peace and that stability. That even when the storms come, even when the winds rage, that you are a firm foundation. That you are the one who holds the future. Even when we don't know what the future holds. That even in the midst of painful circumstances and loss and grief, that God, you still grow good things in us when we surrender ourselves to you. And so, God, I pray that for us this year that we will hold our own dreams for our lives loosely and surrender ourselves to you and invite you to move into only the ways and spaces that you can. We pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.